Hey, thanks, Sue, and good morning from me. Um, I think that this sermon is going to be co- too complex and incomprehensible. So, welcome. Um, have I got my mic? I haven't even got my mic on just to make it even. Oh, I have. Nick's nodding. So, and I tell you that not because um, you're not bright enough to follow it, but I've spent hours on it. And I'm not sure I've made it coherent. So, but I'm telling you, so we try harder. Uh, We're in this one together. And just to throw another spanner in the works, I've just realized that the two Bibles we've got in our pews are different. They're both NIV, but the 1979 version, which I think is the one that Sue just read from, is different from the 1990 NIV version, which we've also got, which uses different English words. So there's another layer of complexity for this sermon this morning. But I'm going away for a week tomorrow, so you can't find me and issue your complaints to your elders. Um... But I do, something in me feels that this one's important. Um, The power of Christian children, and why does that even matter to people here and listening at home? I've been struck over the last 10 years particularly, well I've only had 36 years, but the last 10 have particularly struck me, about how quickly young people are growing up and facing really heavy subjects really quickly. Have you felt that? Perhaps more if you're an older generation than what went before, Um, like massive existential questions about who am I, where where am I going, and what's my true nature, and there's anxiety is soaring, perhaps more than ever. Um, And I also get the impression to answer the questions of young people like that, answering them doesn't necessarily solve the problem, Because there's something just fractured about young people at the moment. And even if you could patch up one question they've got, it's almost like the whole whole of them is a bit fragmented and lost. And I'm sure some of you adults are like that as well. I know there are times where I've felt that. And these are the types of things I want to try and coherently talk about um, this morning in this sermon. I've borrowed from loads of cleverer people than me on Psalm 8. So if you hear anything about this sermon and you think, oh, that makes sense, that's the bit I'm borrowing today. And when you're lost, those are my bits. But I do want to give credit to some wise people and their words on Psalm 8. Um, And children, if you're listening and haven't lost you yet, and if you're, uh, well, pay attention or draw pictures to help you pay attention, maybe do stars in the sky and church children praising them which is linked to like the other things I want to say this morning. Now, ladies and gentlemen, um, on Thursday in that room, we asked the question um, about the Enlightenment period. Give me a nod if you heard in school about the Enlightenment period. That was in the 18th century. It began in the 18th century. It nods, sort of, the Enlightenment. It wasn't particularly enlightening. It was quite a dark time and lots of bad things have happened but in the enlightenment period there was a wholesale rejection an attempt of rejection in Europe about religion and anything authoritative that had gone before now we're enlightened the age of true rationalism has come let's try and figure out life from for ourselves and what's happened though it's trickled into the postmodern era which is the one we live in and everybody now is Well, that's a general statement. A lot of people are carrying huge burdens on their own shoulders. 
to a higher degree than ever before. It's a post-enlightenment problem. And it trickles into adults as well as people in school at the moment. And so we are, we are asking questions like this to record amounts like of degree. Who am I? Um, I must carve my own meaning. Because value no longer comes from up there. Because we've got rid of that. This is the age of enlightened rational, rational thinking. So now, where do we get value and purpose from? We carve it ourselves. So you understand, following so far, how it's going. Um, I must define myself and push that out. Because it's all I've got now. And I'm just going to blend into nothingness unless I declare exactly who I am in this world. And others need to know it. That's all I've got. And that is a huge burden to carry. Have you ever tried to plumb the depths of your own heart and figure out who you really are? We change even if we haven't had breakfast or a coffee or if we haven't slept. And yet young people and adults now, I think, are asking, who really am I? I read a quote this week. It was this. Know that all your strengths are gifts. Otherwise, they'll crush you. What do you think about that? Your talents... Are they gifts that you can rejoice in? Or is it all you've got and you have to put it out to the world? Otherwise, you're nothing. I was reading a a psychoanalysis chap, psychologist, who was analyzing the strange times that we live in at the moment. Stranger than ever, this one psychologist said. And he was assessing the rise of anxiety and suicide in the West at the moment, which is running hand in hand with people who are being told they're just biology, a mass of cells, and any value they think they have is just being given to them by culture, which is quite sad, really. You're just what we say you are anyway, so good luck with that. And he concluded this, to reduce your worth, and if you're listening at home, your worth to nothing but a series of biological codes has catastrophic ramifications for you and everybody else around you. And then he did a study about how the 20th century proved that in various ways. But he told the story about a king. Children, you might like a king. A king in a castle. So picture a king in a castle, a castle around him, and then a wall around that castle to protect the castle, and then society on the outside of that wall. You got it in your mind? This is what the psychologist was saying. He said, the king stands in the middle. Now imagine the effect of all of those circles around him if the king one day says this, everything that's gone before me doesn't matter anymore. I'm rejecting it and I'm carving out a new path for myself. I don't know what it is, but all the best, I'm off. All the wisdom that's ever been passed down for me, I am now enlightened and I'm rejecting it. And the paper made the case that this, the ramifications would be enormous, not just for the individual, but for everybody else around. Breaking out as me as the epicenter of a new definition without ever consulting anything that's gone before. It would have catastrophic consequences to that person 
and everybody else around you. Now, I'm going to ask a question. Have I lost anybody yet? Are you sort of still with me? Okay, nods, right, okay. Hearty nods from some people, okay. What would happen there is social chaos. Then you enter guesswork for what's next, for questions like government or that king or whatever else. You also will then get odd educational ideologies popping up left, right, and center to try and help the king figure out what he is in this new vacuum that he's created which rejects everything that's gone before. Welcome to education in the 21st century, by the way. So, in this post-Enlightenment era, the 20th century, that's the one that's just happened, tried to make this case. All religions are equally worthless. And out went the baby with the bathwater, because what if one was true and can help people become stable with life's big questions? Out it all goes. And of course, there's chaos left, right, and center. How are we doing as a society that's generally rejected the living God and our history of Christianity? How are you doing this morning? Now, I'm going to say three more things, and this is potentially the most complex and confusing part. So, to quote the AV, the King James Version, gird up the loins of your heart to follow this next part. Here is a little history lesson, which you might agree with or not. But we as a culture have been on a trajectory for decades now towards absolute self-isolating determination. Okay? With no traditions, culture, uh, moral, psychological, or legal, or biological limits. We've been heading to that for a long time. And here's why Owen thinks that's happened, according to other people I've been talking to about this subject. Medieval society, 500 to 1500, I think was a brilliant time. And I get really sad when people call them the Dark Ages, because they weren't. That's not fair. In the medieval period, very few young people and adults were having crises about who they truly are and asking whopping existential questions from age eight upwards. Do you know why? Because most of them went to church. Okay? And yes, the church sometimes had some problems. I agree. But what you learn in church is, oh, the Lord God handles all those questions for me. I'll pass them over to him and see what he has to say on the matter. So we weren't carrying massive problems about self and worth, and value, and purpose. However, in the 18th century, there was a man who began the ball rolling to self-definition. And it's now in modern philosophy, it's rife. And this man, well, to keep you awake and following, what do you think his name was? His first name began with a T, and his second name began with a P. He was an 18th century British philosopher, and his work affects pretty much every area of philosophy today. His name was Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine, hugely influential, began to say this in his works. My church is my own mind. Now, that's interesting. I don't need to go to church anymore. 
because I can figure everything out for myself. I am free to make my own decisions and answers about everything. Then, a few years later, the next century, the 19th, there was another philosopher. He's very famous, and his works affect everything that we hear and read in education today. He's from France. His first name was A, and there was a little French thing in the middle with a D, and his second name began with a T. Have you heard of him? Okay. Alexis de Tocqueville. Do you study him in Cardiff High? We did study him in Planitian. He wrote a book in the 19th century called Democracy in America. Have you read it? Well, he defined what an individual really is. And this was groundbreaking as we started to reject what God's idea for people was. And I'm not sure if he was pushing this or just observing what was starting to happen in the Enlightenment period. But here's his quote about individualism. You ready? Individual is, <clears throat> individualism is a calm and considered feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows and withdraw into the circle of family and friends. With this little society formed to his taste, he gladly leaves the greater society to look after itself. Free for all, off goes the king. It's just me and the little group of people who agree with me to define everything. And then the last, the third complicated thing is that self-definition of withdrawal from tradition, church, and culture also affected another area of us in Europe, and it was economics, which has been on the rise to an individual state. Are you ready? Following in the next 100 years, the richest man in America in the 19th century, he was a steel industry tycoon. His first name began with an A, and his second name began with a C, and he wrote on what it truly is to be alive and to succeed in life. Do you know who that was? His works affect economics even today. Andrew Carnegie, steel industry tycoon, America's richest man said this. Now listen to this one. Individualism is the foundation of modern civilization and money. The foundation of success. So now we have people totally confused being told that their individual worldview, even right down to how they spend, earn money, is the foundation of success. Now you cannot undersell the influence that those works have had to modern day. Because right now, we have young people waking up so um, afraid of looking back to cultures and group mentality that's gone before. They even look in the mirror now, and if their biology that's looking back at them reflects a traditional view that was once was, they want to even break free from that. Total individualism. And if my body preaches a message which I don't feel and I don't want to hear, I'm going to be individual from even that. So there you are, modern philosophy, individual. 
modern economics, and even now modern biology. However, we want to be throw off the shackles of the past. And this psychologist was saying it's going hand in hand with real big problems and worries. And if that's you, we want to help with some of these things. So obviously, for the last chunk of this sermon, my question is, how on earth can church members like us, or the Lord Jesus Christ, help people who are asking questions about all areas of their life, from money to biology, who am I? And church has always said, go to Jesus and ask him. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before as you tune in this morning. What might the living God have to say? And in Psalm 8, there's a real powerful thing going on. I'm going to reread the first two verses in a minute, and then I'll say some things about it. But Psalm 8 begins with church children, and they're really powerful because they're looking up 3,000 years ago and praising God for who he is. And it speaks to the ideologies around the church. They don't look up and go, Who am I? I see no meaning. I have to carve it for myself. These are the powerful children. Oh Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens and from the lips of children and infants you've ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. What does that mean? That means... If you are asking these questions today, one of God's ways to help you is to join a church and listen to the way that children praise the living God. It is really powerful. Now, I don't know if you've ever studied the Council of Chalcedon and the hypostatic union of Christ's divine nature and the human nature. Have you? No. But if you go up to a child and go, who's Jesus? They'll go, he's man and he's God and he's great. And that's the summary of the Council of Chalcedon without all the complex boring bits. And there's something about children and adults who act like children in this way. Do you know, we follow someone who's great. He's God and he's man and he can handle your questions. And when people come to church and see that, this text says, oh, it stops the enemies in their tracks. They just get stumped and they're like, whoa. There is something about Park End Church. They're more stable. They're more joyful. They seem to be robust. They're not those oppressive, nasty people we've read about in some books. They've got life. They real and this Jesus that they praise. And children in church is going, yeah, God and man, he's amazing. I follow him. It does wonders. It's almost too simple to be true. What is the answer to our friends, or if it's you, who are lost, burdened, sinful, angry? Oh, just get a child to explain who Jesus is. And okay, you might have to do a bit more than that as well. But start there. Start with Jesus. Have you ever been in a bad mood? Who's shaking their head? 
Sue. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, have you ever been in a bad mood, but then you come to church and you start singing his praises, or you hear people praising? Has it changed your mood? does that sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes you didn't want to go to church, but you did, and you get this sense of perspective that you wouldn't have had if you had stayed as an individual trying to carry life's burdens yourself. Have you ever experienced that? That's what this psalm is about. Come to children, we're praising God, who he is. We're looking up. He's got us. Children remind us about who Jesus is. And we're to have childlike faith in that sense. And I'm not saying we don't wrestle with the big questions. I spend my life reading about them. But it comes down to this. Who do you follow? Like, Jesus can really help you carry life's burdens. Really. And really answer your questions. He says in Matthew 11, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from wise and learned people and revealed them to little children. Now, the last part of this, I just want to tell you exactly who they are praising. Well, I sort of already have, but I want you to see how wonderful it is in Psalm 8. Um, In verse 3 and 4, I'm going to read it again. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man? that you care for him. You've made him a little lower than the angels and the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. I'm going to pause there, say a few words. If you've got a version of the Bible that does, does not say here in verse 4, the son of man, that you care for him, and some of you will have that, your version is very good in that area. Okay? Some English Bibles are good in some areas for some things and others are better. That one should say this. Who is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? See, when they look up, they don't go, oh, I've got to crawl back into a cave. There's too much space. It's just an existential problem. I've got to carry for myself. They go, you did all that, and yet you're mindful of me, and you value me. What are we, humans, that you're mindful of us? Oh, this is how it should read. The son of man, that you're mindful of him. That's how Hebrews 2 uses it as well. Now let me punch this home. Why does God value all of you listening this morning? Why does God have a story for all of you this morning? Why were you bothered to be made? Why does God say you're more than mere biology? Oh, the son of man that you care for him. Now, any Bible scholars in the room can shout out the answer. Who is the Son of Man in the Bible? Anybody know? Don't say Daniel, because that's a separate Bible study. The main one. Jesus. That's the most popular term he uses for himself. Why does God the Father love you so much this morning? Why? Jesus. Jesus. The Son of Man, that you care for him. And the very last part I'm going to say is that's why, and you can read it again later, verses 5 to 8, this psalm takes him right back to the beginning of the story of humans. Creation. And why does it do that? Genesis 1, 27 to 28, to end Psalm 8. Why? Well, I'll ask a question. Have you ever had a dream? you ever dreamt about anything? <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, 
But I dreamt the other day that a church member in this church had had an affair and I was chasing after him around the Titanic to tell him off. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I've had dreams. That's very strange. Well, in Genesis 1, God has a dream. And the dream is this in Owen language. Let us make man in our image. So the Father says to the Spirit, we're going to make a creature. And he's going to be in our image. It's not going to be a cow or a pig or a bird, although they're great. What is the image of God? What is this creature that is made? What is the image of God? What's a human? You ever answered that? People sometimes go, oh, something that's moral and got a conscience and an imagination, can speak language and got intellect. But that's not the question the Bible asks. The Bible doesn't say, what is the image of God? The foundational question that all confused people this morning should be asking is, who is the image of God? Who? Don't sell yourself short. You're not a what. Who is the image of God? And Colossians 1.15 says, the Son, the Lord Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the Father, Jesus. So let's sink let's sink that in. The Father says to the Spirit, "We cannot do better than Jesus. He's great," as the children say in church. So let's make lots of people to be like Jesus in His image. And now here you are. Here you are. Let's make them in Jesus. So they're like trusting Him. They're one with Him. Let's make them like Jesus and they're going to love other people and deny sin and horrible things and just put each other first like Jesus does. They're going to share in our life, say the Father and Spirit, these people. Then we value them as much as we value Jesus himself. That is how much everybody listening this morning is valued. And then along you come. Much more than biology or mere physics and Jesus was not an isolated individual. He is the king of a new humanity which come together with shared value and purpose and love. And the church children get it. And they go, wow, you're so mindful of us because of him. Humans, look after the earth. Look after the animals. Look after your wives. I mean, we've ruined that one, haven't we? We're not doing great as the image of God. Along comes Jesus Right, you, the prototype of who humans really are and what they should be, you do it. Along comes Jesus. He does love his friends. He does forgive them. The weather even does what he says, like we were supposed to do in the Genesis story. The animals obey him, like we were supposed to do in the, animals, in the Genesis story. He does everything right. He's so wonderful and valued. And then he says to you, guess what? You're just like me. I'm going to die for you and take away those nasty things. And now follow me. And you're valued. And my Father loves you. So stop looking in the mirror to figure out who you are. Look to me. I've got you today and forevermore. And let's all come like children this week to Jesus and bow the knee and say, well, thank you. We're following you. You are great. I'm sorry for being too long and complicated, but I hope parts of that were helpful at times. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.